God, with our Bibles open, pray that our hearts will be open as well. God, I pray that you would give us a softness this morning. Help us to be receptive to your word as it does the work today. I pray, oh God, that as we look in this uh, area of disagreement, division, Lord, that you would help us to have humility. God, that you would search each one of our hearts. I pray, God, that our focus would be on Jesus and, Lord, the cross of Christ and, and your power that was on display. And so, Lord, help us, Lord, be a unified people because of this passage, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> By God's grace, uh, one of the strengths in my marriage with Lindsay uh, is communication. Now, it hasn't always been that case. We did not start out uh, having that strength. God has been able to grow us tremendously in that uh, arena, even now, uh, although rare, uh, we still have our own uh, disagreements from time to time. In fact, last week, uh, we had uh, a lively marital discussion, if you will. That's also known as an argument, um, just Christianese language there. Uh, we had a conflict. And before I get into this, I want you to know from the whole church that your pastor was in the wrong here, okay? I was definitely wrong and probably won't surprise you if you know Lindsay, she's right 99% of the time. But it's that 1%, it's those few times in which I've been right that convinces me in every argument that she's in the wrong and I'm in the right. So what happened last week, we had, um, we had plans to go to the Indianapolis Zoo. And we had to schedule time. We were going to go mid-morning. And I thought to myself, okay, we're going, you know, in the middle of the morning, like maybe I can go and play some pickleball beforehand. You know, I've got a few hours to be able to do it. So I asked her, can I do this? And she said, yes, but make sure that you're home at a certain time so we can get ready together to go to the zoo. I'm thinking, no, no problem at all. So I go play pickleball, having a great time. My partner was killing it out there. And I got kind of, um, you know, lost in the moment and I forgot about time. I got back to my car and uh, looked at the time and I thought, oh no, I'm, I'm going to be late here. And as I'm driving home, I'm coming up with this narrative in my mind of why it's no big deal to be home a little bit late, right? I'm, I'm kind of positioning myself to make sure that I can defend my position. So I get home and of course, Lindsay's frustrated. You know, she's a little bit upset about why I wasn't home when I said I was going to be home. And it launched into this disagreement. And the whole time in this conversation, like, I know that I'm in the wrong here, but I'm still defending myself. Like, have you ever been there before? Like, like I know that I'm clearly on the wrong side of this. And this is, this is how sneaky even sin is, especially in my own heart. I'm thinking I'm in the wrong, she's in the right, but I need to balance this out. And so I need to find some angle where she can be in the wrong as well so we can do this mutual apology thing. And so what I did is I went the route of, of saying, honey, you're not being very gracious right now. And that was not a good move. That did not end well. Okay, so if you're looking for some type of strategy, I do not encourage that. It kind of made matters worse. But it obviously put me in the wrong all the more, had to apologize, ask for forgiveness, and, uh, and reconcile with her. But as I was thinking about that experience last week and looking at our passage today, it really surfaced this question of, do you know how to handle disagreements with someone else? Do you know how to handle conflict? Do you know how to handle uh, that situation where you're not seeing eye to eye about a particular issue with someone else? The reality is, is that 
relational conflict is inevitable for us all. If you're not in relational conflict right now, just wait. It's in your near future. It's right around the corner. And I think dealing with conflict um, with a spouse or with a family member is one thing. But knowing how to deal with conflict inside the church with other believers, I think is something completely different. And this morning, I think that that's the question that we're going to tackle together, is how do you handle conflict? How do you handle disagreement with another believer inside the same church? It's an important question, especially if you've been in tune with the landscape of the church in America over the last several months. It's no surprise that there is conflict, there are disagreements in the church. It seems like every four years, the people of God just forget how to handle conflict in a godly way and still live in unity. And I think if we were transparent this morning, um, some of us don't know how to handle conflict largely because we don't like conflict, right? I don't know very many people that say, man, I love conflict. I'm looking for it. It's really what makes me come alive, right? So we don't love conflict. So typically we don't know how to handle conflict. In fact, we've got some default responses as far as how to handle, handle conflict. Some of us just completely avoid the issue, right? If I just kind of suppress this, if I ignore it, pretend it's not there, maybe it'll just kind of go away. And sometimes we even label that tactic as I'm just trying to maintain unity in the church, right? But in reality, that's a superficial unity because you're not actually addressing the issue. Or Others of us just conclude, wow, we don't see eye to eye here. So I'm just going to cut off this relationship. I'm almost going to blackball this person. I'm going to avoid them. I can't be in fellowship with them because we don't agree on this particular issue. Look, we've all got different tactics for handling conflict and disagreement in the church. But I'm so excited about this passage because I think we need this passage, especially in the day and age in which we live. Because what we're going to find in this passage is that there was conflict in Corinth. There were divisions, there were disagreements, there was discord. And I want to look at how Paul addresses this issue in this church in order for us to better understand how are we to handle conflict and live in unity, even in the midst of having disagreements with other believers. Now, Paul's going to circle back on this topic in chapter three. So he's not going to say everything he needs to say in this passage alone. But I want you to notice a couple of things that Paul does here. Number one, I want you to notice from verse 10, I want you to notice the appeal that Paul makes. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice that Paul is very careful in how he addressed this issue with the Corinthians. Notice Paul does not begin making a demand here. He's not heavy handed, nor does he ignore the issue of disunity in the church. And what Paul does here is he appeals with tenderness, addressing them as brothers, or could be translated as brothers and sisters. This is something that Paul will actually do over 39 different times in this letter alone. By far the most occurrences out of all of his letters put together. Paul's using, I think, family language here 
because he's reminding them that we are actually part of the same family. We're part of the same family of God, which means as being part of God's family, we handle conflict differently than the world. We handle disagreements differently than the world. Remember, Paul is viewing this church not as problems to solve, but as people to love and to shepherd. And he's calling the Corinthians to have that same kind of view towards one another. But notice his appeal is not just tender, but it's balanced with authority. Notice what he grounds this appeal in. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has a little bit of a punch to it. Okay, so Paul is viewing division as this family matter that is very serious. And it involves tenderness and it involves authority in order to address it. Now, if I could summarize this appeal, I would summarize it this way, that this is a call to unity, not to uniformity, and clearly not to division. When we're thinking about being in a disagreement with another believer, especially inside the church, there are two ditches that we need to avoid. We need to avoid the ditch of division and the ditch of uniformity. Now, verse 10, we see clearly this first ditch to avoid where he says, let there be no divisions among you. It's very clear, divisions are dangerously sinful. When you are experiencing division with another believer, most likely there is the presence of sin there. There might be pride, there might be bitterness. In fact, division is one of the characteristics of the flesh in Galatians 5 that we are called to avoid, and more on that in a moment. So that's one ditch to avoid, but the second one is uniformity, meaning that we have to agree on every single issue. We almost have to be robots. That's another ditch to avoid. And Paul speaks about this, for example, in uh, Romans chapter 14. The issue here in Romans 14, Paul uh, is noticing there's a, there's a disagreement, a differing opinion on dietary restrictions. But if you notice in that chapter and in the entire book of, of, of Romans, Paul never calls those who are weak and those who are strong to agree on this topic. He never tells them, you need to think identically on the issue of dietary restrictions. In fact, in verse one of chapter 14 of Romans, Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so opinions and preferences and non-primary doctrine, there is freedom to have differing opinions and even disagreements. So the ditch here to avoid is uniformity. And so Paul says, avoid both ditches, how? By being united and living in unity with one another that you can have different opinions on non-primary doctrine and still be unified. How? Well, notice what Paul says here. He says, all of you agree and be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, the question is, uh, what are we to agree upon? What are we to be of the same mind and, and have the same judgment on? Again, it can't be every single issue. I think what Paul is calling this church to and calling us is that we are to agree and have the same mind 
on what does unite us. And what unites us is Jesus Christ and his saving gospel. See, this is another reason why I think Paul refers to Jesus 11 different times in these first nine verses, because it is Jesus and Jesus alone that unites the people of God. It is under the banner of Christ that people who are different can actually come together. Even if you look at verse nine, the verse right before our passage, Paul is calling the Corinthians, They're reminding them, you've been called into the fellowship or the union of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be united on Jesus. See, unity in the church refers to the oneness of the people of God who are bound to one another and bound to God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of, of having diverse distinctions and expressions. And when we live this, out this unity that Jesus has made possible, we're actually reflecting the Trinity. You think about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct and different persons, yet one and unified. So Paul is, is making this appeal for unity. I think even the reason why Paul will push back on the Corinthians in verse 12 is because what unites us uh, is not, I follow Paul. It's not these statements of, I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. Making those statements and creating these tribes out of these human leaders is what was emptying the power of the cross here in Corinth. And so Paul's appeal is that for the Corinthians to agree to be on the same page about who Jesus is, what the gospel is all about, and how that creates unity. But also having that agreement, being united in Jesus, having the same mind on the gospel, also informs how it is that we do disagree with other believers. It also shapes how you handle differing opinions with those around you. See, if division means there's no harmony because of coral-defining disagreements, and if uniformity means there's a superficial harmony because everyone's a robot and there are no disagreements, then the call that Paul is making here is to unity, which is deep harmony because of a grace-saturated way to disagree with other believers. For example, um, and this has never happened in our church, completely hypothetical, but imagine if in our church there was a group of people that approached the elders and they said, we believe that Pastor Chris should only preach from the King James Version Bible. Okay, that, that's our position. And then let's say there's another group of, of people in the church and they approach the elders and say, no, 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 we believe that Pastor Chris should only preach from the ESV translation of the Bible. Okay, we would take a step back and say, okay, there's a disagreement here. There are differing uh, opinions on this matter. How do we address that? Well, the appeal would not to be to stand before you and say, look, everybody must have the same translation of the Bible. We're going with the ESV. And if you do not hold to this position, then you cannot be a member of our church. You will be church disciplined if you are reading another translation. That would not be the appeal. And the reason that would not be the appeal is because what unites us is not having the same Bible translation, but what unites us is Jesus Christ and his gospel. 
And so the appeal would be, hey, let's remind ourselves of what does unite us. It's Jesus and the gospel. Let's start there because when we start there, that actually informs how we have that conversation about different Bible translations so we don't go down the path of quarreling and division. So we don't have a group of people saying, I follow ESV, I follow the King James Version. That would create division in the church. The call would be come back to Jesus because he is what unites us and allow that reality to inform how we talk and how we engage with one another. See, when we remember that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, we have been given the gift of his righteousness, we all have been rescued from God's wrath, we have been adopted into the family of God, this is what our identity now is. We are in Christ. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians and he's calling the people of God to find new methods for relating to one another that's different than what the world looks like. So this is the appeal, all right? This is the goal that Paul's gonna take the Corinthians uh, towards over the next couple of chapters. So if that's the goal, let's look at the obstacle. What's the problem here in verses 11 and 12? The issue here is actually quarreling. Look at verse 11. Paul says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you brothers. Okay, let me stop there. So see, we've got Paul who's receiving um, kind of inside information from Chloe's people. We don't know a lot about Chloe. She most likely was a Christian, but her people were traveling back and forth from Ephesus, uh, where Paul was, and Corinth, most likely because of business. And so they had some type of interaction with Paul, and Paul's hearing this report. But notice the obstacle here to unity, the issue at hand is not differing opinions it's actually the prideful quarreling. And the symptom of the quarreling is made clear in verse 12. It says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now we know about Jesus, we know about Paul. Apollos was, according to Acts 18 and 19, was a powerful communicator of God's word, dynamic preacher. He went and visited the church at Corinth after Paul planted this church. He was trying to help uh, mature them and equip them. And we know Cephas refers to the apostle Peter, probably the most well-known early church leader at this time. But the obstacle here is not thinking that Paul was a better pastor than Apollos and Peter. The issue here is not that Apollos was a better preacher or, or Peter was a better leader. No, the issue was where those differing opinions was taking this church. It was taking them down the path of quarreling and division. On a lighter note here at this church, if, if you have a differing opinion, maybe you think that you know, Tim Lucas Savage has the best hair on staff, right? it's a differing opinion, that's fine. You can hold to that position as long as it doesn't take you down the path of quarreling and division within the church. See, that's the issue at hand here. You can have differing opinions on which leader was better as long as it's avoiding quarreling and division. In fact, this word for quarreling refers to a hot dispute. It's an emotional flame that results in strife with one another. 
and they're quarreling on these different leaders led to division. Now, I want to drill this down a little bit further this morning because I want to answer this question of what is the difference between a godly disagreement and prideful quarreling? Okay, godly disagreements will happen, right, with our different experiences, our different backgrounds, like, we're going to have some differences within the body of Christ, and, and we need to be godly in those conversations. So what does that look like compared to prideful quarreling that leads to division, something we are called to avoid? Well, let me give you three key differences. Number one here, I think prideful quarreling cares more about winning the argument than loving the person. Look, to win the argument but lose the person is easy, but it destroys unity. Prideful quarreling prizes winning the argument above loving the person. Okay, so when you find yourself in a disagreement, you've got to be aware and make, and you've got to make sure that you're coming across as gracious, as loving, patient, and humble as possible with that individual. All right, a great question to ask yourself uh, is, am I a delight to disagree with? Am I a delight to disagree with? It might be a good question to ask somebody after you have a disagreement. Ask them, hey, was I a delight to disagree with there? Like in that conversation, even though we didn't see eye to eye, was I loving? Was I charitable? Was I gracious? Was I kind to you? We've got to be aware of, of the priority to loving the person that we're talking to above winning the argument. And, and I think this also impacts the way that you view the person that you're disagreeing with. That just because you have a differing opinion, that doesn't make them the enemy, right? It's not to view them in a negative light, but we are to give them the benefit of the doubts. Uh, Gavin Ortland uh, says that he's a pastor in LA. He says, it is one thing to disagree with another Christian. That is inevitable to anyone who thinks. But it is another thing when our disagreement takes an attitude of contempt condescension, or undue suspicion towards those with whom we disagree. All right, so you've got to be on guard with how you're viewing people in the midst of even a heated argument. Secondly, another key difference uh, is that prideful quarreling leads to division and not deeper unity. A key sign of quarreling is when there is discord in the body rather than deeper unity. So rather than a deeper understanding of what actually unites the two of you, there's actually distance. There's relational distance. There's emotional distance. There might even be a blackballing of that individual or cutting off that relationship, cutting off that friendship just because you differ on a particular opinion rather than pressing into what unites you, which is Jesus and the gospel. Let me give you a, a very simple uh, example of my own family. The Beals family, when, when we're trying to, to figure out what restaurant to eat at, what, you know, going to pick up some food, uh, it is a rare occurrence that all of us agree on the same restaurant. 
Like even my two girls are, are starting to get more opinionated. We're like, hey, what do you guys want to eat? You know, like people are throwing out Chipotle and, and Chick-fil-A. And of course, there's always going to be a vote for Taco Bell. And, you know, some people that, you know, some, I, I hear this, oh, let's go to Panera. And look, just between me and you, church, like when I hear Panera, like it's automatically disqualified because we're looking for dinner and not a light snack, right? Can I get an amen on that? Uh, and so when we're talking, we, we end up kind of, you know, figuring out, okay, we're going to go to this restaurant, right? Now, I know that not everyone agrees and everyone's going to be happy, all right? Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I stop and I pray and, and that results in everyone having a smile on their face. I know some are going to be eating that meal for the sake of someone else's happiness. But here's the thing about my family is that we are all going to eat at the same dinner table. We are all going to be unified in sharing that meal together because what unites us is not agreeing on the same food. What unites us is that we are part of the same family and share the same last name. What's not going to happen is an individual is going to say, I hate Taco Bell. I'm going upstairs to my room for the night. That's not happening because that's going to lead to division and not unity. Look, the point is this, is that you can, you can disagree with someone on an opinion, on a non-primary doctrinal position, and yet remain in a relationship and a friendship with them by reminding each other and saying, look, we may disagree here, but I love you, I am for you, and we are part of the same family of God because Jesus is what unites us. See, sometimes we base our unity and our friendships and our relationships, and we build unity on things outside of Jesus. We look for other commonalities, and we think that's gonna lead to a deeper experience of the unity that Jesus has already purchased. When in reality, what the Bible teaches is to build unity in and around Jesus to experience the deeper sense of unity. And then thirdly here, another, I think, key difference is that prideful quarreling elevates non-essential issues to the level of first importance. First importance being primary doctrine. All right, we looked at some the, uh, theological triage in the spring, so I won't re-preach that message. But these issues of first importance are not only issues that you need to affirm in order to be a Christian, but they're issues that you need to affirm in order to be an orthodox Christian. So not just things related to the gospel, but you could throw in there the inerrancy of Scripture or, or the Trinity, those, those primary doctrines that would characterize you as an orthodox believer. Now, I want to be clear on this. As believers, we are called to hold fast to the inerrancy of Scripture, which means there will be primary doctrinal issues, issues of first importance that you must draw a line in the sand upon and not compromise. And when those situations arise, and some of you experience this maybe on a weekly basis in the workplace, uh, students, you might experience this in the schools, or hey, if you're talking with neighbors, right? When those situations arise, we want to state the position clearly with boldness, but with love and not compromise on what the Bible says. However, I think prideful quarreling takes place within the church when we take a non-essential 
or a non-primary doctrinal issue, maybe a preference or an opinion, and we elevate it to the same level of first importance. And we say, I'm dying on this hill. In fact, if you don't agree with me on this, I can't be in relationship or fellowship with you. And I think that was part of the issue of what was happening here in Corinth. They clearly had a disagreement on which human leader was most effective, but they were elevating this to the issue of first importance, leading to quarreling, leading to division, and leading to breaking off relationships. And look, I think that we need to be on guard with doing the same thing, taking non-primary doctrinal positions, taking different methods within ministry, different political convictions, different preferences with educating our children or different philosophies in parenting or even different ways of of viewing COVID-19 and mask wearing and the vaccine and all of those things and elevating those issues to the level of first importance and saying, I'm dying on this hill unless you agree with me. We can't be in unity with one another. We need to be careful of doing that. One of the most famous statements by Tony Evans, he says that the goal of the devil is to stir up disunity. That is his target. That's what he's trying to do inside the church. And this is a good reminder for us. When you find yourself in a disagreement with another believer, there is spiritual warfare happening. There's something going on outside of the flesh and blood conversation that you're having that is occurring in the spiritual realm to sow seeds of discord, to create pride, to create bitterness, to to view that other person in a negative light. That's what the enemy is trying to do. And one of the the go-to tactics that I think he has is he wants to come to us and he wants to take a non-essential issue and convince us to make it our personal crusade at the expense of even the relationships around us. Again, I think there is a danger here happening in this church at Corinth. You can see the, the cultural values infiltrating this church. We looked at this in week one, cultural values of competition and being image-driven, all these other things. They were impacting the church here because they were taking these leaders and they were elevating them and they were creating these tribes around them. And I think that's part of the issue here is a sense of tribalism. The people in Corinth were, were using Paul, using Peter, using Cephas, And they were saying, we have a desire to belong to this group of people who share our specific preferences about what it means to lead. And tribalism, I think, is is a danger that we need to be aware of. I think we all have kind of our own tribes, maybe subconsciously, that we're not even aware of. But tribalism, I think, is a danger because it serves as an echo chamber. I think tribalism convinces us that there's there are problems going on in the world, but it doesn't have anything to do with me and my tribe. It's all out there. It's people outside of my particular group. And then it paints other people in a negative light. And I want to be clear, we, we definitely need to champion biblical issues and biblical causes, but I think we need to be careful about building unity around anything else besides Jesus. Because sometimes what happens 
is we become these fierce advocates for particular issues, which is fine because it does create purpose and belonging and a sense of, of maybe identity, but it can also create walls around you that can hinder unity when the only way to experience harmony with someone else is if they pledge their allegiance to your particular tribe. And I think, church, we need to be on guard, especially in the season that we're living on, that we're living in, of trying to create unity with things beyond Jesus and beyond the gospel. Like, you can agree with certain things, with certain relationships, that's fine. But be aware and be sensitive that it's not creating disunity, division, and quarreling with people who may not agree with you. So this is the obstacle, I think, at play here. This is the obstacle, I think, that we are experiencing even at play here in 2020 when you look at the churches as a whole in our country. So if we've looked at the appeal, if we've looked at the obstacle, what's the solution here? What do we do with this? Well, verses 13 through 17 Paul is going to shine a light on the centrality and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In particular, he wants us to come back to the cross of Christ, which is the power of God. The solution here for unity is to give up lesser visions of unity, to not fall prey to building unity around things outside of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 13, Paul uses these rhetor simple rhetorical questions just to show how Jesus must be the center. He says, did anyone else uh, die on a cross for you? Was crucified for you to save you? No, it was Jesus. Do we baptize in any other name besides Jesus? No, of course not. See, Paul's point here is that something has gone terribly wrong when the charisma or the ambition of a human leader or a preacher looms larger than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, just by way of application this morning, this principle here, just because the election is just a few weeks away, this is your uh, every four-year reminder. And I know that we believe this, but we need to say this out loud every four years, maybe more regularly, to not put your hope in a political party to bring about the change in the human heart that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. I think we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be on guard with even how we voice our opinions to not miscommunicate that to others. Okay, the gospel informs our political position. The word of God shapes how we engage in politics. But don't fall into the lie that change will come about based on policies that are detached from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That whoever is in the White House, the gospel is what changes and the gospel is the answer that, that the world desperately needs. There's your four-year warning. All right, verse 17, Paul says, my priority was preaching the gospel. Paul was deeply aware of the danger of emptying the power of the cross by focusing on other things. Paul wants us to look up in awe at the cross of Jesus Christ, not at other things in finding what unifies the people of God. And so very simply, the solution in dealing with disagreements, in dealing with division, in dealing with quarreling is to come back to the gospel, 
to remind yourselves that the people of God are a blood-bought people who share the same thing in common. And it's the most powerful and it's the most deep, it's the deepest reality of who we are is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all of our stories. We share that in common, that we were sinners. We were objects of God's wrath. We were lost. And yet God in his mercy has rescued us, has redeemed us, has forgiven us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so to come back to that and say, this is what unites us, this is what unifies us is important but the cross is also what informs how we disagree with one another. For example, looking at how the gospel must inform our disagreements, when you think about, at least when I think about, how much grace that God has poured out on me, grace that I did not deserve, my response to that in the midst of a disagreement is to say, I need to give grace to this person how can I withhold grace when, when all of the grace that I've experienced in and through Jesus Christ? Or, or take the example of, of how God has been patient with me. God has been long-suffering with me. God bears with me. And so therefore, when I'm in a disagreement with someone, I need to be patient with them. I need to be long-suffering with them. I need to bear with them. Or think about the reality of the gospel, that because of Jesus, I am forever righteous forever righteous in Christ. And so therefore, in a disagreement, I don't always have to be right. I don't always have to get in the last word because I am fully righteous in Jesus Christ. See, the gospel creates unity because of the blood of Jesus, but it also must inform how you disagree with one another. See, when you look at the Bible throughout the scriptures, when it's trying to answer the question, how do people who are so different stay unified? The answer is not, let's go start a church around our particular preferences, or let's cater that church to someone's particular preferences. No, the answer is build unity around Jesus. That is the answer to actually living in unity in the midst of disagreements. Look, as we close this morning, I want to give you four questions of application today. These are questions I'd love for you to take, to think about throughout this, uh, this week, even today, or in your small group. Be great to ask someone close to you, maybe with whom you've had a disagreement with, to be able to do almost a personal assessment. Question number one, though, is really important. As you're having a disagreement with someone, is this an issue of first importance? Is this an issue of primary doctrine? Or is this a preference, an opinion, or a non-essential? That, that's going to shape how it is that you disagree and the stance that you take. Secondly, am I using scripture to inform my position on this topic? Or am I using culture? Am I using my feelings? Or am I using tradition? Right? It's a great question to ask because sometimes we've got these beliefs and they're beliefs because we've always had them. But we need to ask the question, does the Bible actually speak to this particular issue, all right? Thirdly, am I building unity around Jesus or am I trying to build unity on other commonalities? Okay, I've already spoken into that of the danger of that, but it's a great question to ask. And then fourthly, uh, am I a delight to disagree with? Just a great question to ask people, ask your spouse, ask family members as you're having different interactions with them. 
Look, church, I want us to be called to the power of God, which is on display in and through our church when we're unified in the cross of Christ, not in these secondary issues. It's the cross that takes a diverse group of people and says, no, you can have unity in and through Jesus. Let's be that kind of church. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. God, we thank you for, Lord, his substitutionary death on the cross that not only brings us forgiveness, but it's through his death by which he's created a new people, a unified people. And God, we are just stunned at the power of the cross. It is the only thing that can take people who are so different from one another and actually bring true and a deep unity. God, I pray for Pennington Park Church. I pray in particular during this season that as the watching world looks on at us and our interactions, as they look at our social media posts, God, I pray that people would, would find Jesus attractive, would find something stunning about the gospel who takes us and unifies us. God, I pray that your spirit would continue to work that in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.